Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. At the time of this recording, 1 p.m. on Thursday, February 24th, Russian military forces were closing in from the north and south on Ukraine's capital city of Kiev and the government of President Vladimir Zelensky. But yesterday, hours before Russian Prime Minister Putin declared war on Ukraine, we spoke with Vladislav Devadzon, editor-in-chief of the Odessa Review, who was able to give us a live picture of how Ukrainian citizens were handling the imminent possibility of war. Vladislav's family fled Hitler. He was raised in New York. He has Russian citizenship, but splits his time between France and Ukraine. He is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and the author of From Odessa with Love, a collection of his columns for Tablet Magazine about the Ukrainian Jewish community over the last decade. He declined assistance offered by American diplomats to evacuate Kiev. Vladislav, welcome to People of the Pod. It's so great to be here. So, Vladislav, there are reports of more Russian soldiers on the border and field hospitals going up, a cyber attack on the Ukrainian parliament. Are people afraid? A week ago, everyone in Kiev was divided into two camps. Basically, a third of the population here was taking it very seriously and joining self-defense, territorial self-defense battalions and stocking up on uh, groceries. And two-thirds of the population here or were a week ago, ignoring it completely. It was obvious to everyone that this was the continuation of a seven-year, eight-year war. There was not a lot of concern. There's a lot of stoicism, and I dare I say it, even a bit of delusion. As of two days ago, since uh, it's been two and a half days, since President Putin of Russia has recognized the people's Donetsk Republic and the so-called People's Lugansk Republic, it's gotten heavy here. It's gotten a lot heavier, and a lot of people who were just telling me there'll be no war, there'll be no war a couple of days ago are really reconsidering their certainty of that position. I was myself one of those people who kept saying that the Americans were overblowing matters and that this was just something that the Biden administration was doing in order to keep, you know, allies on side in order to keep Moscow on its tiptoes, in order to keep uh, Kiev placated, in order to make sure there would not be a lot of blame and blame gaming on them if things went really belly up here. But now it's gotten really, it's gotten really serious and really bad. So why did you not think that this was going to happen? I mean, talk a little bit about that eight-year war uh, for those who aren't familiar with what's been playing out in recent years and why you did not think it had potential to escalate. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of shelling and sniper uh, duels between snipers on, on two sides over the last seven years since the signing of the Minsk II Accord. Uh, there was seven years of more or less... I wouldn't call it silence. I mean, there were there were there were a couple of dead Ukrainian soldiers and a couple of dead Russian soldiers. We don't know how many Russians or separatist proxies that were dead every month, but there were you know a total of five, six, seven KIA and a couple of dozen wounded every month. Sometimes, if the Russians needed to send a message, they would blow up a block post and kill four or five Ukrainian guys. But in the last 
months, President Putin has become very frustrated with the way that the war was going. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't the war that was frustrating him, it was the fact that there was nothing that he could do in order to change the direction of the conflict. Ukraine was just surviving, and little by little, the Russians were losing legitimacy here. They were losing mechanisms and tools to deal with the situation. Their local proxies were being rolled up. The Ukrainian state was becoming bit by bit more powerful, more cohesive. The Ukrainian military was building up a serious war machine. They were building up real cohesion, uh, a lot of real reform of the Ukrainian military. And all the uh, things were in terms of patterns, in terms of vector of, of development. They were going in the wrong direction from the standpoint of Putin. So can you clarify for our listeners, what are they really fighting over? I mean, what has this eight-year war really been about? This war is about Russia not wanting to let Ukraine go. This war is about Russia and Putin not wanting to let Ukraine develop as a liberal democracy to get rid of its kleptocratic uh, structures from, from the 90s. President Putin is deathly afraid of what political scientists refer to as democracy contagion. The idea that democracy can take root here and things will be okay here and Russians will look at their next door neighbor and say, oh, why can't we stand on our back feet and live like human beings? You know, why, why don't we get off all fours and stop living like animals and just, uh, and I say this as a Russian and a Ukrainian, so don't send letters to the editor. Uh, as a Russian Jew and, an, and a Ukrainian Jew, an American, I, I could say things like that, essentialist things that it should, shouldn't get me in trouble, I hope. But uh, to be a bit less funny, the Russians live in an autocracy, an incredibly corrupt one, which is extremely inefficient. And instead of putting a lot of investment into their lifestyle or their, uh, their human development or development of infrastructure, big chunk of it is squandered on uh, the personal whims of kleptocratic billionaire class and a lot of it on tremendous security apparatus in order to keep Russians pacified and now on that same security apparatus keeping their neighbors pacified. And Ukrainians, just being a post-colonial situation, they don't want that. They want to be free, you know? So that's what this is about. Is this a test of liberal democracy? Ukraine is a very flawed democracy of a lot of problems. Is, is this, uh, it's a very facile to say this is liberal democracy against autocracy. I don't really love that framing when I hear people who are tub thumping about this being, you know, the last bastion of freedom before, before you hit the Finland station. That kind of rhetoric always makes me very uncomfortable. But yes, this is absolutely uh, a proxy war between liberalism and the American-led liberal post-Cold War consensus and the illiberal autocratic regimes, which are led by, by Putin and, and the Chinese. So is this good against evil? Uh, that's a bit facile. Uh, we're not children, right? But this is a proxy war between different kinds of thinking. The Ukrainians want to go into the future, most of them. The Russians want to remain mired in a nostalgic past for a past lost greatness. 
very toxic, revanchist, chauvinist thing when you're stuck in your past, when you're stuck in your uh, better times, right? It's it's uh, progressivism versus versus revanchism. It's liberalism versus illiberalism. It's the future against uh, the past. It's the the West against the East. You can slice this up in many different ways, but it's also just a national project trying to rupture free from its former colonial overlords. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was curious, you know, if this was just Putin's megalomania calling the shots here or, you know, what Russia can gain from this aggression. And it sounds like you just kind of described what victory looks like for them. Well, the victory is keeping the Ukrainians on side. Victory is keeping Ukrainians part of, uh, you know, something like a Russian Empire 2.0, Soviet Union, near abroad 2.0 or 3.0. They don't want and they cannot have an imperial project without Ukraine at the uh, at the center of it. There is no Russian imperial project without Ukraine uh, for all the historical antecedents, for all the historical uh, echoes, for all the literary echoes. There's just no Russian imperial project without Ukraine at the center of it. And they can't they can't let it go. How did you end up there in the first place? What's your background? I'm from New York. My grandparents are from here, and they fled Hitler in 41, 42. They were evacuated out to Uzbekistan. And my family was living in Uzbekistan for a couple of generations, from, let's say, 44, 45 to 89 when my family left. We spent about 50 years in Central Asia. And I grew up in an intelligentsia family, and they left kind of an interesting family, I think. They left Uzbekistan from Moscow. We left Uzbekistan from Moscow in 89, and we left for Brooklyn from Moscow in 91. I grew up in New York City in the Russian diaspora and speaking Russian at home. I studied Complet and Russian literature at university. Then I moved to France for a year to study at the Sorbonne. I thought I'd just be there for a year, but then I met a nice Jewish girl from Odessa, a Ukrainian girl, and then... Uh, 12 years later, I'm still somehow in Paris and I haven't made it back to New York yet. And I wound up making my life partly in Ukraine since 2010. I'd spend the summers here, 2010, 11, 12. So when the Maidan and the war happened, I was already deeply kind of assimilated into the culture and into, you know, the, the local stuff in Odessa and Kiev. Now, for the last few years, you've split your time between France and Ukraine. What is it that keeps you coming back to Ukraine? I've been reporting on the Ukrainian Jewish situation for 10 years, and it's absolutely fascinating. The Jewish situation in Ukraine, Jewish culture, uh, Jewish identity, the formation of a Ukrainian political nation with Jews at the center of it, and Ukrainian Jews separating from Russian Jews in a post-Soviet way, or within the post-Soviet Jewish world, uh, Ukrainian Jews and Russian Jews evolving in different directions, with Jews being at the center of the war and uh, the Putinist propaganda and all this. This is something I've been covering for 10 years. I find it fascinating, the memory politics, the, the fact that uh, you have a, a Jewish president in Ukraine and President Putin was accusing him just two days ago of, of overseeing a country run by neo-Nazi Banderites. It's just a remarkable historical time to be here. This is where my ancestors are from. I'm extraordinarily attached to this place. 
it's a really amazing time to be in a country that's shaping its national identity in real time. And of course, the Ukrainian Jewish life is the focus of your book, From Odessa with Love. It's a compilation of your columns that you've written for Tablet Magazine. I do want to ask you, I mean, given the history of Jews in Ukraine, some are quite alarmed by the events that are unfolding and have already started leaving, some for Israel, some for other places. What do you think the future is for the Ukrainian Jewish community? Well, look, the the Ukrainian Jewish community in Donetsk and Lugansk was decimated. In fact, my friend Sam Sokol wrote a book about this. Sam did a tremendous amount of reporting in his book, Putin and the Jews, and he, he is absolutely the, the best on uh, the events in Donetsk and Lugansk of anyone in the English-speaking world, including me. I didn't cover that story as much as he did. The Ukrainian Jewish communities in Lugansk and Donetsk, as, as Sam writes in his book, were decimated. Just two major European Jewish communities, I think probably tens of thousands in Donetsk and a couple of thousand in Lugansk, had to just pack up and leave for Moscow, for Kiev, for Israel, Two major Jewish diaspora communities in the middle of Europe in our century were uprooted by war. Probably has not happened since the 40s. But you do have two Jewish cities with 150 years, 130 years of Jewish life in in both of them who are no longer living there. So do you think that the Ukrainian Jewish community will dwindle during this conflict, will shrink? If President Putin orders airstrikes with intercontinental ballistic missiles from, from Russia or placed on the Belarus border into Kiev tomorrow, uh, clearly a lot of communities are going to dwindle, not just the Jewish community. There will be a lot of refugees. There, there has been an uptick of Israeli Aliyah applications. And whenever anything happens here, if Israelis open up Aliyah applications, they simplify the bureaucracy. I have Jewish friends in Odessa who took Israeli citizenship in 2014 just to have a, a way to get out. They have property and they have a beautiful family life there and friends there, so they didn't wind up leaving. There are historical moments in 2014-15 when, when things were really hot, when more Jews took citizenship in Israel or they took a green card in America or something. I do not think that the community in Kiev or Odessa is going to dwindle unless the Russians really make a push on those cities. Dnipro has 70,000 Jews. It's not, it's not, they're not going anywhere unless the Russians try to blow up their city. So even then, if that doesn't happen, is there a fear or are there signs that this conflict could unleash anti-Semitism that's been below the surface? There's a lot less anti-Semitism in Ukraine than there is in general in, in, uh, uh, in, Western, in Eastern Europe. It's different from Western Europe. There is in Eastern Europe like a of-the-earth peasant anti-Semitism that, that can come up in a, in a bad situation. Uh, has not come up yet. All the polling, including local and Pew polling, says that Ukrainians are least anti-Semitic people in Eastern Europe. Partly it's because Ukraine, unlike Poland and all these little post-Soviet states like the the Baltics and uh, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, they they did not have their ethnic composition destroyed by uh, by, uh, Nazis. Poland was... uh, 
multi-ethnic state before Hitler. Ukraine is still a multi-ethnic state. It's, it's still, it doesn't have one nation, one, uh, one church, one language. It has multiple ethnicities, has like 25 churches. It has multiple languages. It has tremendous numbers of minorities. A lot of different sorts of people live here together, more or less productively and peacefully. Well, I have to ask you, have you regretted not leaving when you had the opportunity to do so? And are you taking particular precautions? Look, I am taking particular precautions. I'm on TV all the time. I was in the gym right now watching the BBC. It's so funny. I'm in in this hotel, uh, five-star hotel. I'm I'm on the treadmill at the gym and I'm in the basement of a gym and I know that the BBC is in the same in the same building and they're literally taping it two floors above me and my friend the Jewish activist a well-known Jewish uh, artist from Odessa my friend Nikolai Kurbinovich a conceptual artist calls me from Brussels and he says Vlad have you been reading these foreign policy pieces about well-known activists who are on the on the quote quote unquote kit list, kill list that the Russians are going to execute once they take Kiev I said yeah he says am I on the kill list I said, first of all, I don't have access to the Russian kill list. Secondly, if you're worried, keep sitting in Brussels. So I, I hang out a lot of the day in, in the hotel, which is under security. I openly leave and, and I see my contacts and, and people all over the city. I sleep at night in a safe house owned by a, uh, um, an acquaintance with, uh, with uh, too much money. He has more money than God. He is uh, a very, very kind gentleman, so he's given me access to his safe house. He fled the country, but I, I rent a room, and, uh, and, and I have a magazine pay for a room in the five-star hotel, and I use the gym, and I hang out, and there's security in the daytime if anything happens. And I've had other American friends who are based here who uh, were concerned about being on these kill lists, of these alleged kill lists, that they also moved into these hotels. The five-star hotels are protected by the Ukrainian intelligence services, so you, you get something for your money. So I'm in the hotel during the day, and at night I stay in my friend's safe house, and there are four armed guards, former intelligence guys and special service guys. I'm completely uh, uh, incapable of feeling fear or risk. Uh, I don't care about anything at all. I was a refugee as a kid. Uh, I, I, I'm not capable of uh, feeling fear like, like ordinary people, uh, which is why I go to war zones and engage in all sorts of risky behavior. I was observing as an outsider, very much as an abs- outsider, the final moment when lots of American Jews were in the, in the final cusp of assimilation. And I thought this is kind of great. I grew up in the 90s in New York and an important moment for me was watching Senator Lieberman become vice presidential candidate. And I thought even as a teenager, when he became vice presidential candidate, first uh, Jew on a, on a major presidential ticket, I thought this is really the end of an assimilation process, that I, I arrived in this country to watch Russian Jews from, who were from my part of the world having done this for 100 years. And I arrived at the tail end of that. And this is really great. On the other hand, there's something about what Russian or post-Russian or post-Soviet Jews had to give up in order to become Americans. And that always kind of made me uncomfortable. I, I didn't really know how to, how, to, uh, um, how to process that as a young person. But I just thought, you know, this is, this is great. This is the freest country in the world for, for Jews. But also the Jews that came here 100 years ago from Russia or Ukraine, where I am from now, they gave up all that was interesting about Jews in order to become American. 
I truly appreciate you being our witness. I do hope that your earlier predictions of no bombs were absolutely correct and that all of this is just just more saber rattling. I hope so. I don't think it's going to happen in Kiev. I, I, do, I do think there's going to be a dirty war in the next couple of days in the Donbass. And I do think there's going to be a Russian offensive in order to get more concessions. I'm not happy about it. Uh, if they blitzkrieg Kiev, I don't know what I'll do. I'll go underground. As the sun rose over Kiev on Thursday, Russia did begin bombing the capital city. Vladislav did not go underground. He continued to tweet what he was seeing and hearing and feeling. Ukraine is opening up the armories as was always the last-case scenario for partisan warfare. This is happening quicker than anticipated, he wrote in one missive. And in another, my Ukrainian wife just asked me to rip up or burn my Russian passport when I get back home to her, and I'm going to do it. Shortly after the attacks began on Ukraine, AJC responded with a statement. AJC strongly condemns Russia's invasion of Ukraine in flagrant violation of international law. The statement went on to say, We stand in solidarity with the Ukrainian people and remain committed to supporting Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Russian aggression cannot go unpunished. To listen to an update from Vladislav on the developing situation, head to the link in our show notes. We are praying for the people of Ukraine. If you missed last week's episode, check out my conversation with Israeli rapper Nissim Black on how his music and faith have opened doors to talk about racism and anti-Semitism. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 